This past week, I came across a church congregation in California. Now, don't get nervous. But I came across a church in California whose name is a great fit uh, with today's scripture readings. The Well. That's their church's name, The Well. And even more, what must certainly have been a, a move in branding excellence, they are located in the city of Artesia, which is related to Artesian, <laughs> as in the well. Uh, you can find them at www.gotothewell.church. Doesn't that all sound nice? That all goes together well. <laughs> is it too early for that joke? Was it too early for that one? Of course, in life, we find ourselves oftentimes drinking from the wrong source. And so a URL like that, going to the well, is an appropriate call uh, to all humanity. There's a children's story about Genghis Khan. I started laughing when I remembered this story. Children's stories about Genghis Khan? (laughs) But there's a story where he stops to get a drink in a dry and arid place when he comes across a small trickle in a cleft of the rock. It's coming very slowly, so he extends his cup to capture some of this life-giving liquid. And after what must have felt like ages, he goes to take a drink, only to have the cup slapped from his hands by his hunting hawk, who comes swooping down from the sky. This happens a few more times, and it makes Khan all the more angry with each pass of the hawk. He will not let it happen again. So on this last time, he grips his sword just as he grips the cup, there by the cleft. When the hawk swoops down once more to knock the cup out of Khan's hand, which it does, he strikes the bird and fatally wounds it. The now parched Khan, cursing under his breath and cursing that bird, climbs up the rock face toward the source from which this water flowed, only to find when he arrives a large deceased snake of the most poisonous kind leaking its venom into the pool that was feeding that stream. Snake poison water is, of course, the wrong source to drink from. In our gospel reading, Jesus identifies an altogether different reservoir than the venom-laced pool from which we so often fill our cup. We might benefit from a hawk swooping down from time to time to knock that cup out of our hand. But what keeps us from drinking from the reservoir to which Jesus speaks? That's the question I think we oftentimes ask ourselves, particularly when we come to the place of confession in our worship service. Why do I keep going back to that snake-poisoned water? Well, today's lectionary includes multiple uh, texts. We saw Psalm 95 already in our call to worship. We've read from Romans and a portion of the John reading uh, from the lectionary. But there's a fourth reading uh, that we haven't read here in service, but is worth looking at. Uh, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Or what we might headline, mineral water, (laughs) if you know the story, water that comes from a rock. But as miraculous as that may be, and this idea of the people in the wilderness, and they are traveling, they're they're thirsty, there's no water to be found, and God tells Moses to go and uh, water will come from this rock. And that is a a miracle of miracles. But as miraculous as that might be, the story begins and ends with a very human response in Exodus 17. When life feels like it's out of control, when we find ourselves against the ropes and fear starts to set in, we see the same thing that happens there in Exodus. Individually, we go to a place of despair oftentimes, but as a community, we quarrel. 
just like the ancients. In Exodus chapter 17, that occasion came in the harsh wilderness when those people, like I said, had no water. That's how verse 1 reads it. And though the group had seen some pretty incredible things by this point, they'd already seen the plagues in Egypt. They'd already crossed across a dry seabed uh, that was the, the sea was spread and the land was dry underneath. They'd even seen manna from heaven that fed them when they needed food. This crisis of the moment, though, threatens to undo all of that, threatens to undo their very spiritual identity. And it must have been dire because in verse 3, they imagine the worst. They're grumbling that they are going to find death to themselves, death to their children, and it must have been really, really bad. Because they even say, death to our livestock. And then in question seven comes the question of their life, and possibly the question of our lives as well. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question they're asking. I was in a conversation recently in which I was reminded of the old expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. You've heard that one. It's an aphorism that oftentimes is, is, is relayed, but... As I look at this particular story and the crisis that these folks are in, it doesn't seem to square with their response in that moment. Who are these people, we might say, that is these ancient people that makes up this group that's grumbling and quarreling, this group that seems to be wondering if God is even with them? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 95 says this in verse 10, there are people whose hearts go astray. It also says, they do not regard God's ways. Us moderns might see a population that in regards to faith is rather flaky and fragile as we read their encounter and their stories. In other words, they kind of look like us. Perhaps strong leadership could be the remedy though, right? Let's get a strong leader in there. Let's get a director of spiritual ministries, Christian education, get them all straightened out. Wrong. Moses joins the chorus. <laughs> he was the leader. He asks what he must do, fearing that his own life is at risk at this point. And, that coming, and that's all coming from one who's called by God. It's coming from this one who now holds in his hand the sacred staff that before was raised and miracles followed. But in Moses' vision, there are coming rocks that will wound and kill he names it in a stoning. But God, who our same psalmist in Psalm 95 calls the rock of our salvation, imagines an altogether different kind of stone. Not the kind that brings death, but the one, as the story goes, will bring life-giving water. That's unexpected. Water from a rock, no doubt. And I'm sure there's a geologist in the room here who's going to talk to me afterwards about how it's possible for water to come from a rock. But in my typical experience, I don't draw water from rocks. Perhaps even more, though, more amazing than water coming from a rock here is the kind of mercy that's extended to this people. The mercy that God shows to this people long before any of them get their act together, if they ever do get their act together. What's amazing here is God sees them, sees real people with real warts and wounds and all. And what's miraculous is God loves them and still loves them even amidst what they show themselves to be. 
over and over again. That, my friend, is grace that is amazing. That is the thy faithfulness we announce as being so great about God. And though we certainly see God take action on behalf of an ancient people who are traversing the wilderness here in Exodus, the Apostle Paul will note in Romans chapter 5 that this kind of action is exactly what God is all about. That according to Romans 5 verse 8, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, flaky and fragile, right? I added that part. Paul didn't have that part in there. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. I wasn't around when the water sprouted from that rock. That's not a problem. I didn't live in a generation within the biblical narrative. I can forget about that. I know myself, and I think each one of us here, we know ourselves. We've already confessed that we know ourselves to be sinners. But if Paul is right, and I more than suspect that he is based on the consistency between the one he speaks of here and the one who quenched the thirst of the ancients in the wilderness, then we can also know God in Jesus Christ. And what we see in Christ is faithful, loving, and giving. Giving of God's self. So much so that Paul stakes his claim on this. Our ultimate salvation, peace for today and hope for tomorrow, that is indeed quite a well to draw from. That's quite the reservoir to drink from. We can almost hear the sound of those first century Roman Christians as they heard these words for the first time, giving the sense of refreshment as those words came across their lips. They hear Paul say that. I wonder if you're experiencing that kind of peace in your life today. If you know that, that God. If that's the Jesus that you know, the Jesus you have experienced. CNN has been running a series of stories about chance encounters that ended up being the beginning of a long and loving relationship. And I know a number of different outlets have done similar stories over the years. It makes for a good feel, a feel-good story for us. And the unexpected part is certainly here. That must have been how this woman of Samaria felt in John 4. This unexpected encounter. She's going about her, her business. It's her everyday business. I'm going to go draw some water when Jesus comes and visits her. She's going to do something that she always does, probably at the usual time. I know over the years I've heard sermons that have talked about this woman and her background, and they made a big deal about her being uh, married five times and being now with someone she's not married to. None of that is made a big deal of in the text. It's just simply named. This is a regular person who lives in a society, and you think about women at that time, who doesn't have the privilege of controlling her own destiny. I think that's what we can read in these marriages in her situations and now. She couldn't divorce her husband or husbands, but they certainly could divorce her. And here she is, going about her business, just doing her day-to-day activities, getting water, which everybody would need in their household, and Jesus visits her. Jesus, clearly a Jewish man, 
will cross social barriers here. And she names it. Here he is a man speaking to a woman. Here he is a Jew asking something of a Samaritan in which the social, social custom would have said, nah, you don't, you don't do that. We don't share a drink. Many years ago, I, I always wonder what that would look like. In my lifetime, I haven't seen that in my, in my own experience. But I always wonder what that looks like. And many years ago, I, while visiting Thailand, uh, we were working with uh, orphans there uh, who had HIV AIDS. And um, at the time, uh, Thai law said that you couldn't eat from the same plate or drink from the same cup or use utensils with someone who was HIV AIDS positive. So they had at these orphanages, they had different color plates, actually, that the kids would eat from so they wouldn't uh, violate that law. But here she is, a similar type of social barrier that can't be crossed. But yet unexpected, Jesus begins to invite a crossing of that barrier. But we might call this a chance encounter. And for her, she certainly must have experienced this. But for Jesus, this isn't a chance encounter at all. In fact, we know as much from the verse that precedes our reading this morning. In verse 4, the gospel writer notes this. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria because lots and lots of Jews would bypass it. That was their custom. Jesus didn't have to go that route, and people probably would have encouraged him not to. But it says there in the text that he had to go. Something had to be accomplished there. When John uses that type of language in his gospel, something divine is about to happen. There's something about the divine plan that's about to go to work here in this moment. And we see lots of cues in the text that there's something big is about to be unfolded here. We see that it's during the daytime. If you remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus is there with Jesus at night. And as he has that conversation with Jesus, it's clear that Nicodemus doesn't understand. Here he is, this teacher of Israel. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is getting at. And in this darkness, you can almost see it's this feeling of he's in the dark, literally and figuratively. But here he comes, he's at daytime. It's close to noon. The sun is high in the sky. But that reference to it was about noon is actually used twice in John's Gospel. It's used here in John 4, but it's also used in John 19. And how interesting what happens in John 19 that might inform John's usage here in John chapter 4. Because it's in John 19, 14, at that same time about noon, that Pilate will announce... Here is your king, in reference to Jesus. There's something about the Gospels writer's use of this time period, this close to noon, to say we're going to reveal something about who Jesus is. And you can see the responses in John 19 versus John 4 are quite different in those revelations. But the request from Jesus for a drink ends with Jesus offering her a drink, quite the reversal, and saying that he's something bigger than she could even imagine. The conversation goes theological, we might say. The conversation moves into places about culture. And we see different places where cultural barriers, like I said, but also this theological framework of who's right, where do we worship, all these things go around. And we have those type of endless conversations ourselves. But when it comes down to it, Jesus says to her something that she is asking in her deep question in her heart. The same question Exodus 17 asks. 
is the Lord among us or not? The ancients asked that question, and she is seemingly asking that same question. And Jesus' resounding answer to her, the word that will bring comfort and will send her off as a witness to her people, is this, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Now we read that and say, that doesn't seem revolutionary. I am he. He just admits that he's the Messiah. That's all we got there. The construction actually in here for this I am he is a series of I am statements that show up throughout John's gospel. The ego me that we have in Greek is the same way that it's rendered in the Septuagint of the Greek Old Testament whenever we see that divine covenant name Yahweh. And so when the people of Israel in ancient times would ask, is Yahweh among us or not? The resounding question from Jesus at this point to this woman is that Yahweh, the one who is speaking to you, is essentially what he's saying to her. It's powerful words to her, a reminder, an announcement that God is with her and for her. And whatever categories we might have set up to avoid that, to block that, to cover it up, even our own day, we can't cover up the fact that God is with us in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for our lives, for where we're called as we wrestle with similar type questions? Where we struggle from day to day, we might find ourselves in a place of despair. Reminded of a a comedic routine by Jim Gaffigan, who observes this about alcohol. He says, as a teenager, you know it's wrong. I don't like the taste of it, but I want to look cool. Then in your 20s, you're like, you know what? This kind of gives me confidence to talk to the opposite sex. Then in your 40s, you're like, this is the only thing I like about being alive. (laughs) It's kind of funny because it's kind of true. We go through our lives sometimes and the excitement and the adventure of our early years can be replaced by life experiences that can really push us into places of despair and push us into places of quarrel, can give us a jaded outlook on life. But God wants to give us a different vision for the future and also to give us a different line of sight in the present. And so I want to leave us here in conclusion with some words that I read these and I thought, could you say it better? Could this be, could a better summary be said for what God would want for you and me than what was said by Gerhard Forty and Jim Nestigan, who authored a confirmation curriculum in the 1970s entitled Free to Be and wrote the following words in their introduction. Now I know right now some of you are going, Jimmy, give me a break. From a confirmation curriculum? <laughs> but hear what they, what they say as they talk about the witness of Scripture and what it means for us. God has made a decision about you. He hasn't waited to find out how sincere you are, how devout or religious you might be, or how well you understand the Bible and the catechism. He hasn't even waited to find out if you are interested or willing to take this decision seriously. He has simply decided. God made this decision knowing full well the kind of person you are. He knows you better than anyone else could, inside out, upside down, and backwards. He knows, that where you are, he knows where you are strong and where you are weak, what you are most proud of and what you mo- would most like to hide. 
Be that as it may, God's decision is made. He comes straight out with it. I am the Lord, your God. This is the decision. God has decided to be your God. For God wants to be as close to you as your next breath. To be the one who gives you confidence and value. To open a future to you in the freedom of the word. God wants to be the one to whom you turn for whatever you need. He'll go on the right, what's in it for me? Right? What's in it for me? God has made a decision for me. What do I get out of it? Seems like a pragmatic question. Here's what they write. To start with, life itself. God's decision is the life of you. For God is the one who has given you your mind, body, and all your powers, who has looked after you by night and cared for you by day, giving you all you need. The God who creates is the God of life. When this God says, I am your God, you can expect him to give you everything you need to live. And there's more. With God's decision, you receive the freedom of forgiveness. The God who has decided for you is the God who is Christ uh, refuses to hold your past against you, no matter what shape it has had. The God we know in Jesus is the one who takes you as you are, with your strengths, gifts, talents, and abilities, and also with your bad habits, selfishness, pride, whatever else you might want to conceal. There are no strings on his decision, and so no strings on you either. You're free. Still, there's more. The God who has decided for you is the one who opened the grave the first Easter morning. The God who raises the dead. So when this God says, I am your God, the M stands forever. He is, was, and always will be your God. So no grave will ever be able to hold you. In the silence of death, you will hear Jesus' voice saying, Rise and shine. I am the Lord your God. God's decision opens your future. Does it sound pretty good? God has decided to be your God. The God who has made this decision is the one who has created you, freed you, and assured you of the future. God's decision grants you life, forgiveness, and resurrection. You are free. Would you want to read that confirmation book after you heard that? Tell me more about that God. Well, the good news is, that we have learned and heard who that God is in Jesus Christ. That the same Jesus who visits a woman at a well in Samaria visits us here today. That God is with us forever in the presence of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so each one of us are invited, wherever we might be, whatever warts and wounds we might be carrying, whatever struggles and backstory we continue to live in and dwell in, We're invited to come and drink from a different well. We're called to dip our cup in a reservoir that never ends, that we might be well by the power of the living God. May it be so for each one of us in this generation and all the days of our life. Amen. Friends, let us pray.